This idea that we're rational actors making rational decisions is absolutely unfounded. Human beings are predictable, but completely irrational. We are emotional. And so when you understand that almost every action is motivated by emotions, then buying behavior becomes a lot more understandable. <laughs> it seems less confusing as to why we buy what we buy and how we determine what we want. You are not a spreadsheet. You're not a calculator. You are a person with experiences and feelings and history. But when most of us think about managing money, we think about it like it's math. We expect to make decisions about money like a calculator. But managing your money is actually more like figuring out psychology than like math. Human beings don't make decisions like a calculator. We make decisions emotionally, and that includes financial ones. And learning how to manage your money well is part skill, sure. There are certainly techniques and skills to learn that are a part of it. But a whole lot more is about examining your own relationship with money and dealing with all that baggage you're bringing to the table. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. Morgan Housel has an excellent new book out called The Psychology of Money. And in it, he says that your personal experiences with money make up a super tiny amount of what's happened in the world, but it makes up about 80% of how you think the world works. How you think about money, the choices you make with your own money, and the relationship you have with it is ultimately impacted by a lot of stuff besides just those decisions. It's influenced by what you learned about money as a kid, how you saw your parents dealing with money. It's influenced by your reactions to previous decisions you've made with your money, both good and bad. Your relationship with and access to money is heavily impacted by your societal class, your demographics, and your generational wealth or lack thereof. We all have a completely unique and individual relationship to money that's influenced by all of those factors. And by examining that relationship, we can understand why we do the things we do and think the way we think. We can identify those influences and ultimately be able to make more conscious choices about what we do with our money. So this month, we're going to examine the psychology behind money and why we think the way we do about it. And to kick us off, I want to talk about buying things because that's where most of us start thinking about money. What should we buy or even should we buy something? We're bombarded with messages every day that encourage us to buy, buy, buy. Sometimes we even get told that it's patriotic. But why do we buy what we buy? That's what I want to know. And as it happens, I know someone who loves geeking out on buying and marketing psychology. Meet Margot Aaron. She's a psychological researcher turned marketer and the founder of That Seems Important, which is quite possibly my favorite blog in existence. She also co-hosts Hillary and Margot Yell at Websites, which is an award-winning show about marketing, and she teaches writing and marketing to business owners. So when I want to nerd out on the psychology behind marketing, Margot is my go-to. And Margot and I talk about how shopping was actually invented, why we buy the things we do, and how to ethically use the power of psychology for good. 
Hey, Margot, thanks for coming back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you wrote a really excellent article a while back about how we buy things that we don't need and that we're not really buying what we think we're buying. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yes. So this has to do a bit with the invention of shopping. I don't know if your listeners know this. I did not know this, but the concept... I didn't know it until I read your article, so... (laughs) The concept of shopping is a modern day invention from industrialism. So like back in the day, and I would say this is unique to the last 100, 150 years, um, we didn't have ways of making things at scale. So if you wanted to purchase something like a glove um, or a new hat, you literally made it or you went to someone whose job it was to only make those things. And then you had them for a very long time. We also didn't have, We didn't have plastic and a lot of the more disposable type of packaging. And so things were made of glass. They were made of steel. They were made of tin. So they they lasted longer and you took care of them. You also inherited things and you kept them for a very long long time. With the rise of the fashion industry in the uh, early 20th century, which created the idea of fashion seasons. So that was one. That was an invention, which like blew my mind because I just thought that was a staple of life. Why would you wear the same thing every season? But no, no, no. We wore many things um, for years and years and years and years. It didn't change. That's why when you watch old movies and you can't really tell the difference between the 15 and the 1600s, it's because styles didn't change that much until way later. Um, now they change, what, every three months? We have new new seasons. Um, so anyway, this this rise in changes in our supply chain, so how we made goods, their availability and our ability to get them to market, and then the way in which we put them in a store and organize them. So a department store, for example, or a grocery store, those didn't exist until the early 1900s. And so this idea that you could go into a store and pick something out for yourself or your family is an invention, it's new, it's brand new. And when it first came on the scene, it was actually considered very uncouth. So like the wealthy people got things commissioned or made or inherited. And then what shopping allowed was this democratization of opportunity. So when, um, so when, Uh, back in the day, you you really had a huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And shopping came around with the rise of the middle class. So if you were someone who didn't live in a mansion, let's say you lived in an apartment in East London, and for the first time in human history, you could go into a department store uh, with money that you earned and purchase a lipstick. The question of functionality starts to come up, right? You're like, well, what do I need a lipstick for, right? You technically have the things that you need, but you start being able to buy things that you want. And this is where the conversation, the question you asked Susan gets so interesting, is that the invention of shopping led us to the ability to buy things we want. Because if we're really, really honest about what we need, we don't actually need that much. And it's hard to determine the lines between what's a need and what's a want in a 21st century um, world. Because right now you could argue to live as a human being, you don't need an iPhone, but good luck getting a job without an iPhone, right? Or without email or without with wearing the same shirt every single day, right? You cannot do those things. So when we think about 
what motivates our purchase behavior, we have to understand this history because the purchase behavior is predicated upon this idea that you could purchase things you want that lead to a life that is better, different, or more self-actualizing than the one that you currently have. Yes. The, <laughs> the whole idea that shopping was something that was invented kind of blew my mind because it is such a staple of how we live and how we think about buying things now yeah. to realize that a pretty relatively short time ago that wasn't it just wasn't a thing it wasn't an activity it wasn't um it just wasn't a thing it just wasn't a thing there's a really great fictional scene um if y'all want to geek out on this there's a i think it's on hbo a, a series called selfridges about um the man who brought department stores to London from the United States. I think they started in Chicago, but it really wasn't a thing in London. And the, he was a schmuck, like, let's be clear. But it's <laughs> fascinating what the cultural change and revolution happened as a result of this. And there's a wonderful scene, I think it's in the first episode, where he goes to buy a glove and he goes to what's called a glove store. And he makes one simple request that all of you will like kind of roll your eyes out when I tell you, but he says, uh, the woman hands him a glove. She asks what his size is. And he says, may I see other options? And she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and she gets fired for showing him different gloves that he could possibly buy. So it's a fictional scene, but it's indicative of how people thought about goods back in the day. These weren't items of self-expression. They were items indicative of status, and they were items indicative of, of inherent worth, but you, you didn't really have the option uh, to, you know, what, what kind of glove person am I? I mean, today, if you see someone with leather gloves, you don't think um, that this was something they inherited. You think, oh, okay, uh, they're a leather glove person. The color tells you something about whether they're practical or not. Like there's so much about who we are that's inside of our purchases now, where before it was it was uniquely practical. This is something I need to cover my hands because it's cold. <laughs> so if we are no longer just buying things that we need, why do we end up buying anything at all ever? Mm. <laughs> or how do we go about deciding what we want to buy? Yes. So this is where we have to understand a couple of rules of, of buying behavior. So, and it takes us back into the psychology of um, motivation and why we do things. So number one, this idea that we're rational actors making rational decisions is absolutely unfounded. Human beings are predictable, but completely irrational. We are emotional. And so when you understand that almost every action is motivated by emotions, then buying behavior becomes a lot more uh, understandable. <laughs> it seems less confusing as to why we buy what we buy and how we determine what we want. So the question I posed in my article is, why do we buy things we don't need? And the conclusion is, because we think we need them. And the definition of need uh, is something that we, it's very personal. What we determine is something we need or not. Um, and that line between what we want and what we need is, is really blurry in today's world. So to use the example of like a t-shirt, right? Technically, you only need one shirt if we're talking about it physically covers you from the outside world and keeps you from getting scratches. 
Um, and maybe you need two because you don't want that shirt to be dirty and you care about hygiene. But technically, you'd be fine on off of that. But there, we can't ignore the circumstances and culture and society in which we live, which have its own norms. So there are consequences to which shirt you choose, why you chose that shirt, and which circumstance you wear it in. So if you have a t-shirt and you're wearing it to go for a run, that probably makes sense. If you have a t-shirt and you wear it to a black tie uh, wedding, it's going to be inappropriate. And so we have all these social rules um, and professional rules that lead us to status roles and upward mobility and um, surviving in our version of the world, that the line between need and want is, is really blurry and up to, up to us to sort of determine and distinguish what that is. I mean, you, you see it all the time in parent worlds when we talk about you know, what is actually spoiling a child, what is too much toys, what's not enough. Um, and we don't actually know the answer. Um, it, it, is, it is based a lot on what we think is necessary to live a good life. Shopping has been placed in this domain of self-expression and self-actualization. And here's where it gets really interesting, is that we live in the first time in human history where upward mobility and self-actualization really are possible. And stuff is not really about stuff. It's about what that stuff represents. So this is where human beings not being rational actors is really important. We are emotional beings. And when stuff begins to represent something else, like it begins to represent belonging or group status or upward mobility or manifestation of desire um, or the, um, the uh, or identity and self-concept, then we're not actually ever buying the stuff we're buying. We're not ever actually buying a shoe, right? We're buying inclusion into a group, whether that group is I want to fit in at work or perhaps I want to make a statement by not fitting in at work. Regardless, the stuff that we own, the things that we wear, the things we choose to share with others in the form of stuff, it's not actually about stuff. It's that time of year. Time to set some new goals or consider your New Year's resolution. And if you're like a lot of business owners I know, you might be thinking that this is the year you're going to get your shit together when it comes to your money. You're going to start reviewing that P&L statement you get every month. You're going to be more intentional about how you spend and closely tracking the ROI you're getting. You're going to get clear on exactly how you're making money and how you can make more of it without working yourself into the ground. Now, if you're both nodding your head and feeling the anxiety rise in your chest as I describe these financial goals, I see you. We all have the best of intentions about how we're going to manage our business finances, but few people actually follow through on learning how to manage their business's money or execute the financial plans they create. You want to feel like you're on top of your money stuff, but it's tough to climb over all the questions and reports and bank accounts and spreadsheets. That's where I come in. I help you think like a CFO. Working together, you'll learn the skills you need to confidently make database decisions about how to spend your money and how to structure your business so you make more. You'll build a more resilient business that's efficient and easy to run. And you'll create meaningful financial processes so you're never caught with your pants down again. 
Think Like a CFO is a six-month accelerator, online workshop, and coaching program that will teach you to think about your business like a CFO would. We'll cover six core topics, including risk and resilience, investing in your business, scaling sustainably, and your relationship with money. You'll also get dedicated implementation time and live support so you don't get stuck on the details or the execution. And you'll get a clear path to true small business financial literacy so you can connect your money to every other aspect of your work, from daily operations to long vacations. Think Like a CFO is enrolling right now. And when you register before December 31st, you'll also get my course, Not Rocket Finance, which is the perfect primer for Think Like a CFO. To find out more about Think Like a CFO and finally get your business shit together, go to scalespark.co slash CFO. If we then kind of turn this around and we as business owners or as marketers want people to buy our stuff <laughs> we need to position it in a way that it feels like something they want yes and even better if we can make it feel like they need yes our our product or whatever so there is there's a lot of psychology and sometimes manipulation yes that goes into convincing somebody to buy some yes something so what are how are what are some of the techniques that you know marketers and salespeople can use to modify our behavior and get us to buy their stuff <laughs> so oh explain a in couple a, in an ethical way yeah in an ethical way <laughs> so, let's let's talk about ethics for a moment because i think there's an important distinction between deception manipulation and influence and a lot of marketers will tell you there's a blurry line and i do not believe that i think there is a very very clear line i think that deception is bad persuasion, influence, and even a little manipulation can be good. They're generally neutral, um, but I'll explain the difference. And the, uh, uh, the difference hinges on this. Deception is lying, and it tends to be in the domain of claims. So saying something about your product that is not true. So claiming that it cures cancer or claiming that it causes weight loss, using a testimonial that isn't true, doctoring, photos, like all of that is deception and it's lying and it's wrong. Now, manipulation, influence, persuasion can be a different category because of this irrational, uh, emotional quotient of human behavior. And what I mean by that is we have to understand that there, that human beings are motivated by emotional uh, are motivated by emotions and we rationalize our emotions with reasons with like good reasons so most of the time when we want to buy something we are moved by a feeling and then we use features of the product to tell us why it's okay to buy this it's like when you're convincing yourself that you really need those shoes i'd wear them a lot my other ones are kind of outdated oh my gosh they're on sale those are those are rational justifications for an emotional decision you've already made so understanding that this is how our our motivations for purchase work there are certain levers you can pull to increase someone's likelihood to buy now 
here's where the ethical line gets interesting, uh, or where I would argue that it's actually helpful. Now, most companies think that they have competitors within their category, that you're deciding whether you want McDonald's or Burger King, that you're deciding whether you want to um, go to bar three or bar method or extend bar, right? You're picking between different options within a category. It turns out that's not actually how we shop. <laughs> and um, I found this out when I was doing a study for an exercise studio where we were trying to do the very famous competitive analysis. And when we got deeper into the data, what we found is that people weren't making a decision about which exercise studio to go to. They were deciding whether they should exercise or not. So most people, or most of the time, your competition is apathy. Your competition is clicking X on the on the website it is, or on the window. It is marking as red. It is walking out of the store without buying anything. That's generally your competition. And when that is your competition, these persuasion tools can be very useful to influencing action. So an example I like to use is my dentist. My dentist uses so many persuasion levers and it is so incredibly helpful in getting me to do what I actually need and want to do, which is get my teeth cleaned. They will use something called urgency and scarcity, which is um, creating a sense of immediacy and uh, loss. So they'll send me a text message, which is in a convenient form, right? I, I get it on my phone, it's interruptive, but I see it. And it says, hey, you're running out of time uh, to use this, I think it's like there's a certain amount of money before um, I have to make an appointment in a certain time or I lose this cash. And that 10 times out of 10 makes me set an appointment to go see my dentist. Because what they're competing with is just my forgetting and my sincere desire not to go to the dentist because who wants to do that? Um, and so it's a small tool that they can use that gets me to do something that I actually do need to do and eventually want to do, but keep you know bunting the, the ball down the field. <laughs> so this would be an example of persuasion and influence that is slightly manipulable, but it's genuinely helpful. Right? It's not deceiving me. It's not using facts that are untrue. It's not assuming I'm dumb. I think when it comes to the ethical discussion, we do have to consider intent. And a lot of times when I talk to companies, they don't treat their customers as if they're people. And when part of your using these tools and deploying influence tools um, in an ethical manner, it comes from recognizing that there's a human being on the other side. And if they don't genuinely want your product, don't let them buy it. Like, let them live their life. They don't have to buy your product. There's plenty of people that do. Where I think it's helpful is if there is someone out there who has the problem that you solve, then using these tools is genuinely helpful because you can help them overcome their own inertia and their own apathy to do something that they want to do. And I think this is, this is hard to understand because our framing of sales, and you did it right here, is, is talking about convincing people? How do you convince people to buy your thing? How do you make people do things that they don't want to do? And the answer is you don't and you can't. You can't make someone do something they don't want to do. Anyone who's had a toddler and you need them to eat vegetables will understand, or even a teenager <laughs> with a curfew. Like You can't make people do things they don't want to do, but you can help them do the things they already want to do. And so here's the key, y'all. What your marketing goal is and where these tools of influence can be 
genuinely helpful in a moral way is to connect what someone already wants and the desires they already have to the product or service that you sell. That's the key. That is powerful. <laughs> and I think so many of us feel like sales are icky or we're, you know, uncomfortable with them. There's all this like mindset and emotion stuff tied to, especially if you have a service business that's sort of related to, you know, you're essentially selling your own services, you're selling yeah. yourself yeah. Um, in a non-prostitute kind of way. Uh, and trying to get people to buy your thing can sometimes seem very, very convoluted uh, and scary and icky. And then we run away from it where the thing that I have always appreciated about how you approach sales is that it's you're just there to help people and that's it. And if they need the thing that you sell and you tell them about it in a human way, they're going to be grateful that you sold them the thing. That's right. It'll genuinely help them. That's right. And something to remember is that people don't like to be sold, but they do like to buy. Right. We all love buying. We love, I mean, go into anyone's house and the first thing they want to show you is some new gadget, right? They want to show you their new TV. They want to show you their shoes. People love showing you like new door handles and like different parts of interior design. You, if you've ever met anyone who's redone their kitchen, like beware of going in their house. Yeah. I, uh, so we are redoing our kitchen and so are our neighbors. <laughs> and you mentioning the door pulls, I literally walked into our neighbor's house the other day and I was like, she had, you know, all the different selections of door pulls <laughs> and me, her, and our whole group of friends stood in her kitchen staring at door pulls to try and figure out which was the best door pull. <laughs> Like we, right. we had this conversation for like 45 minutes when we were talking about doorbells. That's right. That's right. And it's a perfect example. I mean, we love to buy. We love to, we love the dance of deciding which one and looking at how it looks. And then, I mean, it's, it's, there is a fun part of shopping that we forget when we think about sales because we have this image in our head of this used car salesman who pushes things on people that they don't actually want. And the good news is, is that doesn't work. And, and it's a buyer's market right now with the, and part of that is it's not just the economy, it's the rise of the internet. So the fact that you can Google information immediately um, means the seller doesn't have more information than you for the first time in human history. And so, so we've levered the playing field there and that's where the psychology becomes even more important. Um, but it's also, it's an, it's an issue of respect, right? Like people want the car, right? You want to go to a car dealership because you want a car, not because you want to walk into a minefield where you're going to be taken advantage of. <laughs> so I think, you know, we, you and I are having this discussion resting on a, a few assumptions that we should probably make clear, which is that if you're in business, you are not consciously trying to deceive people with the widget that you have or the service that you provide. Now, we've all met those people who are full of baloney. I don't know if I can curse on here. Um, Feel free. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I have done deals with people where I found out later that they can't actually provide the services that they sold, and that is really sad and unfortunate. And I think being in, in marketing, um, you see the same sort of stereotype as, as salespeople, where people think marketers are full of poo-poo. Um, and in large part, it's because they, they are. Like, a lot of marketers don't understand marketing. They do one tiny part of the marketing pie, and they sell the, the sizzle and not the steak. And what we're talking about 
is that doesn't work. Like that you can fool someone once, you can't fool them twice. And, and you don't want to. And so part of what you're feeling when you feel resistance to sales is one, the legacy of sales that you think is bad, that you're reacting to. And two, what you're feeling is the fact that you're a good freaking person with a sense of integrity. And that's a good thing. Um, so, so what I'd like to offer is, is a reframe. Um, it's not that sales is icky. It's that you were introduced to a version that, that no longer works and isn't true. And the version that does work is thinking of yourself as the solution to someone's problem. I think of it, I call it the problem solution framework in my, uh, in my Skillshare course, but the idea is simply what problem do you solve? And not just the actual problem. This is where need and want, the distinction between the two is really important for how you position yourself. It's that you know you solve a very real need, but that doesn't mean the need is what your customer wants to buy. And it's really, really important to know what problem your customer thinks they have not the one that you know you need to solve. So I like to, I like to use the example of, of weight loss um, because most trainers or coaches I've talked to will tell you that to get to the bottom of a lot of uh, weight issues has to do with emotions. So sometimes it's uh, trauma, sometimes it's loneliness, sometimes it's family. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that underlie why and how we eat. And that is not what you lead with when you try and sell. Um, you, you also don't, you call it weight loss when that's not actually what you're selling, right? You call it weight loss because the person that you want to help is identifying their emotional problem as a weight loss issue. And that's how they're thinking about it. Usually if you're like, I'm gonna make you fall in love with your body, and that might work today actually in today's market, but most people, especially in the last you know, 30 years, were not thinking that way. Um, they were thinking more, I want to lose weight. Then you, you give them the promise of weight loss and then you fix all the other things or you address them. Um, do you see the difference? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind, how, what are some of the ways that we could use this kind of knowledge to help us evaluate our own buying behavior? So when we go to decide if we want to invest in our business or buy a personal purchase, does being aware of what's happening, being aware of, you know, marketing techniques and ideas, does it make us think about what we're buying and why, or do we just, are we just always <laughs> going to buy what we feel? You know, like when you... <laughs> You really geek out on this. So when you go buy stuff, are you super aware of your own buying behavior or are you just aware of the marketing and you're still buying? Oh my God, no, I'm as, I'm as susceptible as anyone else. I, um, it, it's funny, we talk about this within the marketing world and my favorite, um, that form of, or my favorite moment of validation is when Daniel Kahneman, if you guys know him, he won the Nobel Prize for basically figuring out that human beings are irrational. That's an oversimplification. He's the guy who did system one, system two thinking, not important. The point is he discovered biases and someone asked him the same question. Like, you know about biases now, are you less susceptible to them? And he was like, oh no, I'm also a human being. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how I feel when it comes to marketing. Absolutely, like I'll see a two for one deal and I'm like, oh yeah, and I'll spend three times as much money and buy so much more product. And I'm like, wait, you didn't need that, but it made me feel like I was getting a deal and I'm a sucker for a deal. So no, we, we're, we all have our own susceptibilities, but I will say um, where, where it can be helpful and a useful tool is in cultivating self-awareness. 
So if you have a tendency to binge purchase when you're feeling sad, for example, cultivating self-awareness, whether through mindfulness or meditation or journaling or like all the different ways in which you can do it, you can actually start to understand your motivations for purchase. So while you're not always aware of your biases in buying, um, you can understand when like, am I buying these shoes because I want to fit in and I'm insecure? Or am I buying these because it's a genuine expression of who I am? Um, am I buying this because it's on sale? I mean, you can start to have that discussion with yourself and, and then end up wh where I think the, the, the golden land is, is, is not to not buy or not be susceptible, but to be in the, be fully aware of why you're buying what you're buying and be happy with it. You know, be satisfied with where your money is going. So if you're someone who you and I are both fans of, of Rumi, like he talks about a lot of money psychology. And, and one of the things I love that he says is, you know, spend, spend a lot on the things that you actually value. I think where we, we experience discontent is when we spend on things we don't value. Um, an example of that I can give you guys is I would find myself feeling so resentful and angry when I spent exorbitant sums of money on gifts for other people. And I thought this meant that I was a horrible person until I, I dove deeper into trying to understand why and my motivations for purchase and all of the things we're talking about here today. And I realized I don't value gifting, um, obligatory gifting on holidays as a form of love like that doesn't work for me and um and i re-shifted what our gifting policy was so now we give um we give really bad child's art like anything my daughter makes is what you're getting now uh, and it's it's very enjoyable for me because people have the same expression as if you gave them a sweater they don't like they're like oh this is great but it's your kids but it's free so they can't, exactly they can't judge you like you can't be like oh this is i don't like this because it's your kid you yes. can't mess with that that's brilliant that's right that's right and then they feel it's meaningful which is important to me um and it also helps me declutter the house and so that, and it makes my kid feel good. So like, there's a lot of benefits that are more important to me. And then I took the money that we saved and I put it in the places where I like to expend exorbitantly, which is on food. I love spending money on food. I hate being the person who like doesn't want to get the good appetizer. Like I want to spend money to just try the food. So, um, and so anyway, the point is, is like finding that balance. It helps to have that self-awareness to understand what's driving your purchase behavior. And so you're buying things, experiencing less buyer's remorse, getting more responsible with your spending, and you're still going to be motive, uh, emotionally motivated, um, for your purchases, but like, that's not a bad thing. We talk about emotions, like they're bad. Um, but they're really, uh, it, it, it can be fun. Like I love my penchant for costume jewelry. I love that I can wear something ridiculous one day and be in a different costume the next day. Um, that, that is a thrill. Um, and so, so we can relish in this new consumerist economy that we live in without feeling taken advantage of it. Um, and we can also point out, and I think it's important that we do this, point out the places where the marketing is leaning into deception and not influence, right? When it's lying to us about, you know, this earrings that you're buying is not the, it's not gonna cure your cancer. You know, the, the crystal is not gonna cure your cancer. The, the, <laughs> a lot of this is around claims. Um, the ingredient lists we put 
uh, in food and we say it's one thing and it's not. Um, like the, I don't know if you guys have followed the debate on the word natural flavors or spices or even the deregulation or lack of regulation on the term natural. Like that, that is something where it gets filed under manipulation and I would call it deception. Um, we, we, like, first of all, natural, there's something called the naturalistic fallacy, which is the idea that we assume anything natural is good, but we forget that like AIDS and murder are also natural. <laughs> so, so is bacteria, so is COVID. Um, so, so it's called the naturalistic fallacy because you put that word on food and suddenly people think that means the food is good for you. And so, so it's not regulated. That's the argument is that you can't, you, it, natural is not a term that you can technically define, but it is untrue. Um, and so something like that is where you're being manipulated. So you can become um, a more informed consumer in that way, Susan, to answer your question of like where we can make sure we're not manipulated. But this, this is where it gets dicey because we cannot be expected to be experts in every category. And I've written about this as well, um, but this, this is where I, I reveal my own hypocrisy. Like I know everything there is to know about buying food ethically and where there's manipulative and deceitful marketing practices going on. But you take me to the uh, clothing section of the store and I don't know what the heck's happening. And I'm way more motivated by my desire to fit in and look cute than I am child labor laws, right? So, so there, there is a problem in this country with how we talk about what our products and services are, but being that most of the people listening are in the service-based businesses, which means you are in very much control of your own supply chain and aren't uh, dealing with suppliers or problems of distribution that put some of these ethical problems into question, um, you have much more control over how you deploy these tools in a useful and genuinely helpful way. Mm. I love that. So is there anything you think we should talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Oh my God, Susan, where do we begin? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the, the thing I would want people to take away from this is um, your customers are human beings. And the best posture we can take when we think about their relationship to stuff, their relationship to money is contained in my favorite Ogilvy quote, which is the customer is not a moron. She's your wife. And the more empathy we can pull in to our marketing processes, the better. And that is not to say it is licensed to not recognize that you're in a sales transaction. This isn't licensed because our people are on the other side of the spectrum, Susan, where they're like, I can't sell. Selling sell is nasty. Things. I don't sell things. I, it's boastful. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> we don't want to get caught in the false humility trap. If you've built something really amazing, you should tell your customer about it. You should tell them that she wants to know about it. I think we get we get really stuck in our own heads and how we're going to be perceived or whether we're being ethical. A good way to break is to remember that the person on the other end of this exchange is a human being and uh, and sitting in her shoes and going, okay, what is she thinking in the moment that she has made this decision? And sitting in that moment is really, really eye-opening for what would be helpful to move her forward in, in working with you and buying your stuff. Yeah. I love that. So where can our listeners find you if they want to connect or learn more about you and what you do? Yes. Y'all can geek out with me on my website is kind of the home base. That seems important.com. Um, get on my email list. I have a weekly newsletter where we geek out on topics like this and the creative process and entrepreneurship and hustle culture and all those fun things. Um, and I also have an internet talk show with Hillary Weiss 
and it's called Hillary Margot Yell at Websites, where we have conversations like this, but in a much more angry manner, <laughs> without a Susan to, to regulate us. And, uh, and then lastly, I do a lot of Instagram stories. So if you are over on the socials, you can check me out there. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming back to the show and for coming and geeking out about buying behavior with me. <laughs> Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Oh, and y'all, I forgot. I have an Honest Selling Secrets course on Skillshare. It's 19 minutes long. So if you want to go a little deeper, you can check that out. Perfect. We'll link to it in the show notes too. Awesome. Margot is my go-to person for ethical marketing and how to think about using psychology in your marketing well. Understanding buyer behavior the how and why people buy the things they do is critical, not just as a business owner so that you can ethically sell more, but also as a consumer. Understanding why you wanna buy something, that vision of the future that you're buying into can also help curb the urge for spending. And spending less ultimately means more profit and healthier businesses. So by being more conscious of how and why we're spending our money, we can potentially be just a little bit more strategic about how we're using each dollar at our disposal. Now, if this is a conversation that you're interested in going a little bit deeper on or just having a chat about it with other business owners, I invite you to come join me at my Dollars and Decisions Roundtable. It's a gathering of cool business owners, and we talk about things exactly like this. And the next one is January 14th at 2 p.m. Eastern. And if you want to join us, head to scalespark.co slash dollars and decisions, all one word, or just click the link in the show notes to sign up. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Runbeck. 